Good evening, and welcome to the Laser Podcast. Sorry this one's a bit late. I've been busy with a conference and a trip the last couple of weeks. Uh, this week we talk about space tourism in a high-altitude balloon, photonic crystals for solar cell applications, and a storage medium that can hold data for over a million years. Hope you enjoy it! Looking good. Yeah, let's do this. Come on. Publish October twenty second. Way to stay current. We're oh. definitely where it's we're definitely where it's hip and happening. <laughs> when I picked the article, it was current. October twenty second is still pretty recent. It's that's less than a month. Science fast news, bro. Is science fast news? I don't think science is fast news. That's because you're in academia. Yeah. And I'm in unemployed. <laughs> An employedia. It's not really. A, that's not even really a word. It's like Portlandia. I thought Portlandia was unemployedia. It is. <laughs> oh it is, snap! We just burned you, Portland. Anyway, all right. Are you going to introduce this one or should I? Um, yeah, let's start off the the show with uh, finger guns. With <laughs> <laughs> finger guns don't really translate that well to a podcast, do they? No, 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 not especially. So welcome to the Laser Podcast. I'm Cameron Copus, and my co-host today is Chase. Hi, how's it going, guys? So today we are going to we're going to jump right into it. Uh, the first story we're talking about today is about this uh, company called Worldview. That is a new space tourism company. Well, is it is it really new? It's uh, this is all of our information is taken from a October twenty second New York Times article. Post uh, written by Kenneth Chang. Uh, so the concept here is that they are doing high, what is this, stratosphere? Yeah, high stratosphere uh, balloon rides for the low, very affordable price of $75,000 a ride. Well, it's cheaper than Virgin Galactic's. Virgin Galactic, you go at... Virgin Galactic actually goes to space, though. Yeah, it does go to space. It goes to space. Okay, so that's so it's that's a major difference. It, it's it's this is basically the, the the store brand version of outer space travel. Uh, as the far as the technology involved goes, they've been using this technology for high altitude weather balloons for as long as there have been. Well, at least the forties, because I'm pretty sure that's what they blamed Roswell on. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> ballooning is not a new thing no. in general. High altitude ballooning might be newer. They probably use things like mylar and what is this material actually? I know that there are certain, there are companies that are experiment that have been doing this high altitude balloon kind of stuff just uh, to launch small payloads into geos into orbit, very small payloads, and uh, so like you know like weather stuff. And then they actually, I remember I was working for a certain space systems company at one point and they we went to the new product development lab and they were experimenting with having a rocket launch not a rocket having a balloon um carry a payload up into the lower stratosphere and then sending it the rest of the way into orbit with uh booster rockets so that you wouldn't have to okay. uh that's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting concept, and the, the idea was that way you could take a bigger payload up without having to have the huge lift vehicle costs. What were they going to use for something like that? Well, according to the Wikipedia article, and I don't know anything about this this Worldview company, but all right, we did a little background information. Chase and I actually did our senior project on... It wasn't our real senior project, it was our... Our senior design project. project yeah. Our senior design project on designing an airship. Yeah, we did, it was a I would call it a dirigible. A dirigible. 
a dirigible because it's a fun word to say. Yeah, it's a great word to say. It's sadly fallen by the wayside because everybody, when they think dirigible, they immediately think either the mummy or uh, Hindenburg. <laughs> Hindenburg. Yeah, and we, it's too, too bad. But it's we pretty were, great. But we were disc- what in that project we were actually discussing using hydrogen as the lift gas. Instead the concept of be- The concept behind balloon travel is that lift the lift gas displaces air. So the, your lift gas has to be lighter than air, which I, which is a mostly it's like a seventy eight percent nitrogen. Yeah, and close seventy eight percent nitrogen, twenty two percent oxygen. You know, or you know something like that, and then there's like a percent of just other random crap in the air. I guess there's a lot of carbon because of CO two, but yeah. But basically, it works the same way as a boat on water works. It just displaces the air instead of displacing the water, yeah. and the overall buoyant force. If it's if it's lighter than air, it'll rise up to the top, and it will off. And so basically, you need to displace a vol to lift anything significant. You're going to have to displace a volume of air that is with a with a combined weight of greater than what you're trying to lift. Yes. So that's the that's the principle behind lift gas. So basically, to get it up into the strat into the stratosphere, would it be easier or harder as you got up higher? I feel like it's. You're, you go up to a certain point, but most of these balloons, what happens is they, because the, the atmospheric pressure decreases so much, the balloons just expand and expand and expand and expand, and then eventually they burst. And that, and that's, so that's how weather balloons... And that's been the limit limitation of balloon travel into the stratosphere, has I been... I think so, yeah. It's just because the, at that point, the atmosphere is so thin that there is nothing to... There's no pressure coming in against... have against, against. Exactly. Yeah. So you can't... So you're displacing... You're displacing the same amount of volume, but you're but you're displacing the same amount of mass for a while, and the, but the volume increases. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the volume of your balloon. Okay. So the so basically, they have to get just enough. Um, do they, enough I, they don't. To, they don't mention in the article how they're going to lower down again. Are they just going to yeah, vent? Are they just going to vent their lift gas? Is that what they're thinking about doing? I, I don't know. It might burst because they're on a parachute. The picture is the capsule. And then a parachute, and then the balloon. So this capsule is this is a. It looks like a little submarine with a big window in it. I wrote a couple think, big windows, and it, it fits four people. It actually looks like a tie fighter. It looks, it looks like, like the tie fighter without the windows or without the wings. Yeah, that is exactly. Looks exactly like that. And I think that they could do. Th- they could probably get some rich Star Wars fans if they just put the wings on the you know the hexagonal wings on there. Oh you man. Know? I would go. I would. If you, well, yeah, I would. If you pay, had, if you had no. seventy-five thousand dollars, <laughs> yeah, maybe I wouldn't pay. Well, right, on well. the other hand, if you consider the cost of the free champagne while you're sitting up there being rich and hoity-toity, I mean, it's really more of a seventy. It's really more of a seventy-six thousand dollar value. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a. It's not a transport scheme. It's a it's just. It's, it's, a, it's plain space a, tourism. And I think this is probably. And I mean, the actual operating cost of running this thing is cannot possibly be seventy five thousand dollars per passenger. So I think, given that fact that this company is also behind uh, a mission that they want to send two people on a flyby of Mars by twenty eighteen, or starting in twenty eighteen, pardon me, they probably are kind of utilizing this as a way to fundraise for that. This company is going is wanting to do that. Yeah, it's in the article. I didn't. Oh, I missed that. I guess I skimmed the article too, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that is what what, what they're uh, aiming. I feel like that's probably what they're aiming for because this is actually you know the actual principle behind you know lift ga- you know you know lift gas. I mean, I guess the I guess the materials in if they're if you if you're correct and they're just going to um, burst the balloon. Although I feel like that's a very unsafe method, I feel like what they'll probably do is they'll probably go up to their, their height and then start slowly venting the gas. Okay, similar to the way a hot air balloon works, where yes. you have the, uh, the what is it called? The, the baffles that open. Okay. I thought, and, yeah, so I mean, and then you burn, and then you just vent off a little bit of it, and, you know, that'll, you know, to control your altitude, keep you going from any higher, like, you know, but that'll, and then you can just stay up there for a, li- obviously you'll only be up there for a limited amount of time. And then you start a slow, de- a controlled descent, and that would also keep the cost of the material from being prohibitive. Yeah, because yeah, if you had, to, if you, had to, but you wouldn't burst their balloon every time. And because you're going up to such a high altitude, you don't want to burst your balloon every time. That'll waste just tons and tons and tons of money. That's not a good, not a good business model. 
Yeah. Be like, I feel like in terms of what would happen, what it would probably cost in terms of relative to the vehicle, it'd be like, you know, we landed a 747, but we lost two engines every time. <laughs> just, to get down to the ground, we had to, we had to lose two engines. That's just how it's going to work. Okay. So I feel like that's. I don't know. A balloon is cheaper than losing engine, than engines, though. Okay. Balloon, fine. Weather it's balloons like, it's are like cheap. We, it's. There, right, this is. But this, says, is, but this, this is not. Up. But this is not a standard weather balloon. This has to be a, a big enough and strong enough to like dis, one displace a huge volume of gas because you're lifting up this module with people in it, whereas a weather balloon just has to lift like I've as someone who has actually launched a, a couple of weather balloons when I was um, a kid. I was like working with the meteorology service in Northern Michigan, mm-hmm. and they, I you know you handle the payload. It's like you know. 20 pounds at most, you know, it's not a lot, of, it's not really very much. So you don't need to displace as much gas, either, or you don't have to displace as much air. Not, not okay, that's true, yeah. Four people and this big capsule is a lot of, it's, it's, a, it's heavy. It's very it's heavy, heavy, especially if you're trying to lift, uh, but like, think about like, we did all of our, our calculations, it's like, I don't remember exactly what it was, there was a lot, it was a lot of volume cubic volume com- for per, per kilogram of lift. Yeah, it was something like a thousand mil- uh, it was not a thousand no. liters per kilogram of lift. No, I cannot remember. It's been a few years. <laughs> I cannot remember the exact calculation, but basically, you actually need a considerable amount of volume per. Yeah, the so balloon has to be a lot bigger than than what you're displacing. Exactly, you can think of yeah, because as and that makes sense if you think about it, because a, a liter of air does not weigh very much. No, but neither does a liter of hydrogen or helium. Oh, so that's what. We were yeah. getting to earlier. That's the so concept. The, yeah. the concept. The heat. Like, so, what are they going to use for this? If you use, there's there's some concerns or considerations. If you use hydrogen, then you need left less lift gas because hydrogen is lighter than exactly, helium. Exactly half as much lift yeah. gas. Half and, as much lift, and lift hydrogen gas. is. Oh, pl- you got to pause it. There. So it's twice the lift capacity. Okay. Yeah. Because, Sorry, we're back. <laughs> so the difference between helium and hydrogen is that helium has two protons in its nucleus and hydrogen only has one therefore a molecule of hydrogen weighs half as much as a molecule of helium because protons have the same mass so but then you got to talk get into their volume and all that yeah but i'm saying but it's but pretty so, close so, so yeah. unit of vol per unit volume i like if you have a liter of hydrogen it's going to weigh half as much as a liter of helium so so you can lift a lot more stuff with the same hydrogen. volume. Twice as much stuff with the same volume. Yes. Now... But the problem is... It's flammable. Hydrogen is flammable. Extremely yes. flammable. And it's all... That's why the Hindenburg blew up. So you have to take a lot of steps to ensure that, you know, your balloon is not going to catch on fire. Although, to be fair, the Hindenburg was also made out of, I believe, sheep... Dried sheep's intestine? Yeah, the, the outer casing was sheep intestine or something, and then it was rubbed with, like, a butane to prevent it from drying out and cracking or something? Yeah, so pretty much everything they could possibly do to make it light on fire, Yeah, it happened. So It was, it was basically rubbed in flammable jelly to keep it soft. So... Basically, and everybody, and so the, but then because of that, it's just one of those things where people see this is a terrible thing, and then it's just kind of they don't look at the actual stupid things that happen. They're just like, no, it's just safest to cut it all out. So hydrogen's kind of fallen out of favor as a lift gas material. So everybody uses helium. Problem is, reserves of helium are pretty pretty low, and so helium itself is extremely expensive. Yeah, right now I think the United States government is the largest vendor of helium in the world. And the problem with helium is there's a finite amount of helium on Earth, and as you use helium, it evaporates, and it goes, and it just floats away out of the atmosphere. It just floats away from the planet, because it's not heavy enough to come back down and stay here. So once that helium is gone, it's gone. And the United States government collected a bunch of it in the 40s or something, and then later the Congress made them sell it at super extremely low prices. So that's why our, where everybody's been getting helium for so long. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the, the helium reserves are just about out, so they're about to stop selling this helium at the crazy low price. Oh, they're still selling at the crazy low price? I think they are. That's insane, especially when, when you have, like... When it's almost gone. And also, if you have a source of revenue, and yeah. we're going to get into the... Pol- Tying this back into the whole thing is of 
politics is... I don't want to get into politics right now. <laughs> okay, no politics this week. We've got I, enough of that. I already got I already got almost too mad to do this story because of, you know, it's basically just catering to, like, you know, the rich rich people and their... Fancy just, dreams. It's like, oh, I can drop... I can drop to, you know, 150% of the median salary in the United States. No problem. On a ticket to not quite space. Yeah, okay. So, that's... So I mean, that's one of the other things. As cool as this is, it goes up thirty kilometers, which is technically not space. Space not is space. three times that far. Ninety kilometers is is I think where we count space. Are we gonna get into another so, discussion of units? Because you're all like, I'm not gonna. I refuse to use the imperial all right, unit. That's sixty miles. Eighteen miles, sixty-two miles is sixty-two miles. Is sixty-two the miles is space. Eighteen miles is is where this is where this goes thing to. goes up to. So this is actually not as far as where that Felix Baumgartner guy jumped from. Correct. Yeah, it's lower than his jump. Yes. Oh, wait, where did he jump from? Twenty-four miles. Twenty-four. Oh wow. Okay. So he. Not that much further, but still higher up than this. Yes. But this 30 kilometers or 18 miles is still pretty high. I mean, if you've seen... Have you seen pictures of the people who have, like... They put their a camera on a weather balloon and set it up, and it takes the pictures? That's right from about 30 kilometers are those pictures. And it looks like you're in space. I mean, from... Just because you... Because you see the whole curvature of the it's, Earth. It's true, but just because it looks like you're in space doesn't mean you're actually in space. Correct. But that's the, the tourism and aspect. You're ten, not You're not in, in low gravity. Your, your gravity is pretty close. It's not... But at this altitude, decompression would be fatal. Yes. That's why it's in a, like a submarine, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's cool. I think it would be cool. I would do it... If it weren't $75,000. Well, you know, give it time. If this takes off and people still want to actually do this, you can probably do, like, that mass... See, this is where we should have taken our our stupid dirigible market is turning into space tour, low-orbit low tourism or whatever. I, I think we tried that, though. We tried... We tried... Uh, we did a model for air cruises where... Yeah, but that but we were but we were still kind of like keeping it like a couple like you know hundred hundred meters or not. Yeah, that's true. Meters. We were doing low altitude, low still. altitude stuff. All right, fair enough. But well, maybe we should revisit uh, decab. <laughs> revisit decab. Hey, you know, if space tourism is becoming a thing, that could that's probably going to be a big money spinner because you know really if you have a hundred and fifty seats, you sell them all for fifty grand a pop. That's a lot of friggin' money per trip, and you can do a trip every day. Yeah, and one of those. Dirigibles, if it could go to higher altitudes, you could carry a lot of mass. Those things were, they were, they're and I, big. And then I guarantee you the government would be like, so... Can we launch rockets from can, it? Can we Can we use this as a suborbital bomb platform? <laughs> uh, I don't know that it's good for bomb platforms because it's easy to shoot down. I mean, even our, well, I guess our multi-cell model wasn't, our multi-cell design wasn't so easy, but still... Not I mean, point. if well, if it pierces, if, if even one missile pierces the hydrogen containers, everything's just screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Everything just blows up. Yeah. Okay. But I don't know. I'm reminded of the Mitchell and Webb sketch about uh, like they, they went and talked to Doctor Doom or whatever, and he's like, "No, I came to help mankind, not destroy it." And he was just breaking stuff. Okay. Well. I think, that, I think we've said all we can say about this, except that in order for it to be an effective tour, like you know tourism thing you could probably if you drop this down to a grand you can make it in in, in, in large and you know you enlarge your balloon and your capsule yeah you i could, don't know. I you, f- could, you could definitely make this would definitely be like a thrill seekers adventure kind of thing and a grand for a hour long trip into space is actually into space is actually not you know it's not crazy and that opens up the middle class and that's how it is and then you know 50 years later we have about we have like you know rocket buses going up into space. Yeah, that's true. I think they're they're almost missing their, their niche here. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe they did their market research. I'm not going to say that they didn't, but I mean, I think that the super rich are, they're not going to care about this because they're going to have the 250,000. They'll say, well, boy, people are going to actual space, so why would I go to so basically, subspace? So basically what you're saying is they want to go to, like, they're marketing to the, 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 the store brand rich. Like, they'll <sighs> Like, Maybe, but like, like we we can't afford to buy Twinkies, so we're buying Twonkies or whatever. So there's there's like super rich, and then there are rich people who are frugal, and they're not going to waste their money on space, go looking like you're in space. And then you have yeah. the, mid- the a lot of the middle class people who would probably say, "Wow, this is awesome," and they, they could drop. never afford it because it's two years' salary. 
or one year salary or three like, years. It's salary. a year salary for per person, not for like a group. It's yeah. like so it's a hundred and fifty k if you want to, if you want to have like a big romantic date to space. You know, so that's so I don't know who their market is to, except I guess New Yorkers. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I think they're too late. If you want to be on an airship, Airship Ventures in San Francisco does tours for a lot cheaper than this. I don't. And I, then Virgin I, Galactic is the next step up. I kind of feel like they're they're just kind of like in a in an awkward niche because they're not like appealing because they don't. Again, we're we're discussing the marketing abilities of a company made of people who actually know marketing, and we're just kind of talking out of our butts. So we're just a couple of we're just a couple of jerks who, with our combined salaries of whatever unemployment is in Arizona and whatever, like a half step above minimum wage. Yeah, yeah being a grad student does not pay. Does not. Pay, I think we could probably both much. slave away for five years to buy one ticket. Yeah. <laughs> Let's assume we decide we could just, we learn how to, you know, there was that one book about the woman who's like, I'm living on light, I don't need food. <laughs> if we could do that, we could probably save up a lot faster. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. And we gotta, we should get that book. Check it out. Check that out? Yeah, check it we, out. We could do it in our, our segment, Junk Science. We debunk it. There you go. Why don't we do a Junk Science segment? We could just do a Junk Science episode. All right. That sounds good. You could do it every April oh, Fool's Day. Every April 1st. Wait, are we going to seriously discuss junk science, or are we going to... That would be good for, for seriously discussing junk science, but I think we should, like, debunk junk science every so often. Okay, Make we can it do it. Make it educational and Why informative. Not? Yeah. All right. That's, that's pretty reasonable. Although there's a lot of podcasts that do that, but, you know, whatever. All right. Just throw it in. It'll be a popular segment. Anyway. All right. Now we're going to call Gregory, and our, our other contributor, Mr. Greg Norby, will be on the line in just a minute. Marmalades from Scotland, rugs from Pakistan. Mexico has jumping beans and cars are from Japan. Clowns are from the circus, barking comes from dogs. Eggs come from a chicken and lock heavens come from logs. So we just called. Greg to join us for this next section. Uh, Greg was busy in the lab and he couldn't be here at first. So that's what uh, all, the, all, the, all that background noise is. So let's just go straight ahead to your story. Alright, so socials. Yes, alright, so the reason we called Greg in for this story is actually, well, Greg, I'll just let you explain it. So we found um, I hear so one of the biggest concepts of solar power, um, there's plenty of mechanisms that force you to lose efficiency. What, yeah. do, you, what, do, you mean by, what do you mean by plenty of devices that force you to lose efficiency? There's plenty of mechanisms that uh, that sort of dissipate electrons and holes when those form in a solar cell. So there's plenty of mechanisms that reduce the efficiency. One of the big ones is what's called the thermodynamic limit or the Shockley-Kweiser limit, which is... Once you, or once you select a semiconductor for a solar cell, you have a set band gap, and that means that any photon that has an energy greater than that band gap, or less than, just not no. anything that has less than that band gap, any photon that has less energy than that band gap is just going to pass right through, no absorption. Gotcha. Anything greater than that band gap, it will absorb, but any excess energy beyond the band gap energy is effectively wasted because it just the electron basically overshoots the bottom of the conduction band, and then it diffuses back down, or it settles back down to right at the bottom of the conduction band. And it does that by emitting phonons and waste heat. That's a little a little jargony. Very, very but, a little technical, but okay. All right. So basically, we'll, is any energy in a photon that's that's in excess of the band gap energy, it's waste. Okay. Let's let's yes. let's define what the band gap and is for our for our listeners and light energy. Okay. So, so photons band- have energy. Well, it, yeah, it, photons it, have energy. You want me to do it? Is that okay? Uh, the fir- okay. So I think the, before we explain anything about the photons and all, let's just establish what a band gap is. Okay. So the way a solar cell works is there's a material that is a semiconductor, and what this semiconductor does is it's not a normal conductor like a metal. It's an insulator, so it still has resistance. It doesn't conduct electricity easily, but it can absorb a photon if the photon has enough energy. There's this gap 
in between insulating and metal. And then once it gets enough energy, that semiconductor will basically turn into a metal. It'll have electrons that can conduct. Well, okay, yeah. Right? No, is I that is no. that easier? That's that's something. That, so it's basically it's close. I would probably phrase it, it. It starts to exhibit metal behavior. So when you have when you have enough energy to overcome the gap between insulator and metal, it the the amount of, if you add that energy, it starts to act like a metal instead of like an insulator. Yes. And that's what that's what makes it possible to have like current like that's that's the foundation of all you know electronics because you have to have because you don't it's not always on like if we made electronics out of metals they would always be running always conducting never be able to switch and then you couldn't even have binary yeah so that's more importantly so the more ba- important, go, ahead. Oh, go ahead greg more importantly with solar cells uh, if you have that set up in uh pn diodes they have two regions one that has a lot of electrons or free electrons one that has a lot of free holes oh, holes and, holes being uh, an absence of an, ele- an absence of an electron, not necessarily, which is like the which is the second charge carrier. It's just a, a positive. It's a positive charge carrier, where a ne- or electron a free electron is a negative charge carrier. Yeah, but continue. Yeah. So when you set up a solar panel, then you have that positive layer and then or the whole layer and the electron heavy layer, and if you do that same uh, photon absorption thing where you get a a hole and an electron together, there's a built-in potential difference due to all the holes on one side and all the electrons on the other side, which causes this, and it generates an electric field which actually separates the hole and electron. What's more important is, and what, when that happens, is to get to the other opposite sides of the device, and then that's how you get electric current. Yes. From, we should okay. probably just have a whole episode explaining how photovoltaics work someday. Yeah. Because this is not... Yeah. All right. Okay. Anyway. So the concept the concept behind this is that a solar cell can absorb absor- light that has more energy than its band gap, but not less than. And ener- light with higher energy is more blue. So like UV is the highest energy. Blue is lower than UV. Green is lower than blue. Red is lower than the lowest. Yeah. Yeah. Red is the lowest, and then infrared is lower than red. So yeah, you're basically but, losing everything that's low energy and only absorbing the high energy. And right. the and like Greg said, if it's above if it's above the band gap, it's you're just wasting the energy because it only absorbs the energy of the band gap. So it's basically you have wasted potential. Now that brings us to the research that I believe Greg's group is doing. Is that what you guys are doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a, I actually just fucked this up from Materials Research Society. Okay, we don't we do mostly organic. Uh, small molecules absorbers or, or for the the semiconductors that we use for the P and the N layers are just small organic molecules in our group. This is something different. This is uh, they basically took it's sort of a germanium solar cell but they slapped a material on the front that just absorbs everything and then re-emits it as black body radiation. Oh, first we, we need to explain let's, why. Let's so, okay, a normal solar cell is either germanium Silicon or gallium arsenide. Those are the three common materials used for solar cells. Or triple charging. But then that gets more detail. Yeah, okay. So the three common ones are germanium, gallium arsenide, and silicon. Which are the ones everyone's heard of. Yeah, the point is, pick a semiconductor. Unless you're doing multi-junction, you pick a semiconductor, you get one band cap. Yes. That's what you're stuck with. That's that's what... But then, so so in order to increase the amount of... Uh, energy that can be absorbed, like the increase the amount of energy per photovoltaic cell, you're limited by that band gap. So to increase it, you want to have something that will make your photovoltaic cell absorb more wavelengths of light. So what this research does is 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 all to find a material that will absorb all wavelengths of light it's, and emit it at and emit it at a uh, wavelength that can be absorbed in by the by the photovoltaic cell, if I yeah. understand correctly. Yeah, and so it increases the amount that's in the region that the, the solar cell can't or the photovoltaic exactly. cell so can it, absorb. So, so it's, it's a narrower distribution than a black body spectrum. Basically, yes. what you're doing is you're uh, think of it. Uh, a good analogy for this would be like a funnel. So what you're doing is you have a funnel that catches a, a big amount of the sol- of the of the wavelengths of light. Funnels it down and transfers it to a uh, an individual wavelength that's a little bit more that's close that's 
closer into what the what the cell's actual band gap is, and that's the con. So basically, it's just increasing the efficiency by decreasing the the spread of the light's wavelength, and, and that's reducing the amount of energy wasted. Exactly. So that's 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 the concept. So Greg, as probably the person who is most intimately familiar with this paper, will you please explain to me how they did that? So what they did that was um, they used what's called uh, photonic crystal. I don't. I'm having trouble seeing uh, what the actual structure is, though it seems like they have a little inset photo. I'm going to have to look it up in more detail later. Yeah, it looks like a, just a hexagonal layout. Yeah. The deal with photonic crystals is you get, um, you basically get a periodic setup. You can either have it be by a super lattice or by having it be, you know, you know bigger than a suit. Basically stack multiple materials on top of each other such that it's periodic in one direction, right around, right on the order of the wavelength you need. Because the way light works is it can resonate. Uh, it can resonate in certain spaces that match up well to its wavelength. This is going to get pretty jargony. Uh, fair warning. Uh, <laughs> let's let's well, try to keep as, as much of the jargon out as possible. Let's try to keep okay. as much emotion out of this as possible. But when you get <gasps> when you get a high level of periodicity in a crystal right on the order of wavelength that you want, then most of the light that comes out of that crystal, I hadn't even thought of this before, but even the black body radiation, it's going to preferentially emit at, at wavelengths on the order of that periodicity. Okay, can we, can we define periodicity for our listeners? It's a repetition of structure. So if, if you have, like say you have a bunch of, so think about it like, uh, okay, here's a good way to think about it. It's just keep it simple. We're not, obviously this is, it's a little more complex in the actual cell. But so if you have a cube, if you have just a simple cube of like, you know, an atom on each corner. So you have eight atoms in a cube and then you just repeat that structure over and over again. Yeah, it's just a pattern. Periodicity is a yeah, pattern. Cut, your, cut the cube off. Each cube repeating is the small periodic unit and then it just goes on forever or as long as the crystal goes on. So basically what we're looking at here is that certain wavelengths are going to preferentially go through that individual unit. And Based on how much distance it re- over which it repeats. Exactly. So yeah. that is what determines the wave. That is the, the, decide, the determining factor in what wavelength is going to be emitted by the material. Right. And normally that's just like a... Fo- like normally semiconductor experts, they just try to do that um, with LEDs or with solar cells to try to figure out how much, or try to get to preferential, try to get um, a device to preferentially absorb some particular color. But in this case, what we're having is we're getting just black body radiation to preferentially emit at one wavelength. Now, can you clarify, when you say they're emitting LEDs, they're, they're using LEDs, you say they're just kind of like, you know, using... I'm just, they're just, I'm just throwing out uh, typical uses of photonic so normally they use it to try to change the color of an LED okay. or, or something like that. Instead I did, I, of I didn't understand what they were using. The yeah, LEDs this for. is like a novel application for something that we've had for a while. Photonic crystals have been around or been developed, but nobody's ever used it to absorb all the light in front of a solar cell and then re-emit it back to the solar cell right. the other way. So there's also, in addition to making the solar cell more absorb more of the light that comes from the sun, it has another advantage too that I noticed. Um, it says that this this photonic crystal is can maintain its structural integrity up to fourteen hundred degrees Celsius. That's actually really important because remember we're relying on black body radiation, and so the hotter the material is, the more it's going to emit. Yes, but that's also the opposite of a solar cell. So normally, one of the big problems with a lot of solar cells now is that when they get too hot, they don't work as efficiently. Normal solar cell stops working around 200 Celsius. Yeah, there's that. Or, but, or maybe on the order of 500 Celsius is where it stops being effective. So the problem with that is if it's sitting out in the sun under focused lenses and all that, it's going to get hot. So you want to put as much energy as you can into it, but if it gets too hot, it stops working as well. And yeah. uh, so this is another step in decreasing that because this will still work. This works better the higher temperature, and the solar cell works worse at the higher temperature. Well, up to a certain extent. Up to a certain point, yes. yes. 
When does the when does and breakdown starts and breakdown starts occurring at 1400 C or breakdown start, where does breakdown start occurring? It says it, it maintains structural integrity as high as 1400 C. Okay, structural integrity is is completely different than if, you know just sort of absorption effectivity. If the energy output is when does the energy output start to break, start to break down? Because that is pretty much the key to uh, yeah. In, th- in this case, it's a function of just how long I can maintain the structural integrity. Because as long as it's maintaining its structural integrity. It's doing its job. It's still going to. Is it? But I mean, is it doing? Is is? It shouldn't be get any less efficient until it starts to break. Right. The whole it's, concept of the photonic crystal is that the periodicity is what determines the radiation that's emitted, the light or so, the energy that's emitted. Okay, I, I I understand that, but I'm saying if. Okay, so one of the problems, that, but we were talking about the problem of standard photovoltaics, and if I understand correctly. This is just you're applying a layer to the top of a regular photo, of a photovoltaic cell made of just your standard photovoltaic. photovoltaic yeah, uh, made of regular germanium or yeah, silicon exactly. or whatever. So yeah, I haven't seen them address that actually. But I'm saying, but but so obviously the the periodic structure that can you know that that that's just going to keep working at its at the same efficiency up until it starts to break down. But the photovoltaic cell is still the same photovoltaic cell, and the black body radiation does that. Like, how does that affect it after 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 the heat? What would normally break down if it was under direct sunlight? So that's just that's something that I, I didn't yeah. see addressed in the paper, and that's something that I think is like a, probably a key thing. It's like, yeah, the structure itself doesn't start to break down, but I feel like the cell can't isn't going to suddenly just because you're using black body radiation instead of direct solar radiation isn't going to be this just going to work at a higher temperature. That's true. Yeah, it you're depends. right. It's possible it, that they um, aren't necessarily maintaining contact between the photonic crystal and the solar cell. Yeah, but if they're doing that, then you're going to lo- then it's going to lose efficiency too because you're basically just going through air. You might yeah. be able to, to optimize it and find a sweet spot where you have the most thermal efficiency versus energy gain. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you could, if you could do it, so you could have a, you could maintain a vacuum through that gap, that would actually be that probably be the, the most the, the most efficient way of doing it. But oh, air separation technically isn't that much of a problem. The big problem is just making sure that all the radiation that leaves the photonic crystal uh, still gets absorbed. So the main, the main problem is just making sure that all of the radiation that leaves the photonic crystal still gets absorbed. Because yeah, if you get some separation. Yeah, but the sep- yeah, because it's going to re-emit it in every direction, not just towards the solar cell. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. The, the, the gap will the gap will absolutely, and especially if there's air in there instead of a vacuum, because air will deflect more radiation just by you know interaction with the particles. So I'm saying it's like that that gap, even though it'll be thermally more like thermally beneficial to like you know the, the function of the cell, it will also decrease the efficiency. Okay, that's true. So that's something that I didn't see addressed in the paper. That's something that I think is probably a big concern. But although this is an actually a really, this is an excellent concept, and I think it's 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 novel. It's I don't it's novel. It's new, and I think it's something I'm surprised that we have that hadn't been tried before. Because that when you think about it, it makes an absolute lot of sense. Like yeah, you can only absorb one way of light. Well, how about you just filter it down and make yeah. it into something that you can use. I think that's yeah. a very that, well. That's been used. I mean, there's dye-sensitized solar cells that only absorb blue, only absorb red, only absorb green, and then so they have they put like a prism in front of it so that separates all of the light, and each solar cell gets its own light. But this that's, is but it's, it, this it, is a different way of doing that. Well, and I feel like this is probably if you can if you can optimize it so you get that so you get the thermal the thermal the thermal efficiency versus absorption efficiency kind of optimized. Then I think it'd be a lot simpler to just have this this crystal just on top of it, and I think it would probably be a lot more efficient than just splitting the wavelengths. Yeah, it might be cheaper than some, using something like a prism or something. Yeah, like a a very specific wavelength absorber. Yeah, and that you know because you can just you can basically if you can fine tune the periodicity if you can just you know vary the periodicity for your uh, substrate for your actual photovoltaic. It's something you could probably, you know, find a way to just layer on an existing solar cell, depending on what. The, did it say what the material was that they were using to make the crystal? The, yeah, the, the, the they're pre- actually using a few different materials. Um, yeah, they're using hafnium diboride, so it's hafnium and two borons, and tungsten something t- hafnium oxide coated tungsten. Uh, this is it. Tungsten. Yeah, hafnium oxide coated tungsten. So the, both of these are hafnium, which is not terribly common. Not terribly common. So it's still an expensive material. 
This is kind of setting itself up as a concentrated solar cell, though. Well, I mean, in terms of, I mean, if you can, if you want to do that, that's actually it's still more efficient because then you can spread solar to, because this way, if you're absorbing the most light possible, you can start to spread solar technology beyond states like Arizona and California where they get sunlight. Because if you can get this sort of energy from solar power, like a concentrated amount, you can move it up to states where they don't have sunshine, you know, bright sunshine all day, every day. Yeah, it'd be good for absorbing absorption in the infrared. Yes, and you could definitely, and that, and that'll that's something that kind of filters through the clouds and stuff. Yeah, so that's that, that's that's kind of neat. So that's that's actually excellent if you can do that. Oh, I didn't think of that. This okay. is this is good for moving stuff outside of like the sun belt states. It sort of, but it's um, but one of the things, one of the big advantages of it operating at such high temperature is if it only really helps if you're concentrating enough light on it. So that it heats up that much just from sunlight. Okay. Which also requires. Again, I mean, again, you'd have to optimize it. Like, you'd have to optimize this cell structure for lower, for lower amounts of light, but it would still be better. The same kind of idea that you're concentrating all of the different wavelengths. That can't possibly be non beneficial for a place where you get less where you get less sunshine where it's less you know it's possible but if you get a cloudy day it doesn't help you a whole lot because then you can't concentrate the light that's direct light to actually concentrate it yeah that's true i mean as long as you're getting some light you know you could just do something like parabolic reflector that just focuses it to a point you wouldn't be able to lens it to increase to focus it but yeah yeah, you're right it's so it still wouldn't work on a cloudy and a cl- day. On a cloudy day. Not any better than a normal cell. All right. No. Which is part of why Arizona and like and similar states are so popular is because they also have very clear skies most of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why concentrator photovoltaics work so well. That's true. I mean, we have so much solar stuff here. But yeah, as, as provided they can get this working, I, it'd be pretty cool. I can even think of... Uh, there's got to be some way you could do some kind of like integration sphere style setup where it just bounces the light everywhere. Yeah. So you have to tune it for infrared light. So you can, that way you can have some separation between the solar cell and the photonic crystal. Just have the photonic crystal absorb light completely on one side through a concentrator setup. And so then you let it emit on the other side and that's, and somewhere on the end of the, whatever chamber you have set up against this photonic crystal. On the other end, you can set that germanium solar cell and then collect while still having a thermal separation. So it'd be like uh, recycling the light that the solar cell can't absorb and then making generating some that it can again. Yeah, and then keeping the germanium solar cell from you know burning up. Yeah, that's pretty neat. All right, I do have a little bit of a concern with the the deposition method they use. They're using a ALD or atomic layer deposition. So that's extremely, extremely slow, very, very expensive, and very complicated. So basically, I don't, I don't know of anything that's deposited ALD on a commercial scale. Is there, or is it just a research tool? I don't know much about electrodeposition. No, so it's not electro. It's, it? it's, it's, it's uh, ALD is chemical. It's, oh, it's, it's similar chemical. to CBD, but okay. Yeah, is I mean, that right, Greg? Say again. ALD is is closer to CVD. Well, on right? the other, on the other hand, they probably they, they they do need that very strict periodicity to even get this to work. So, yes, that's like true. I mean, that's yeah, true. Part. I can't think of a of another technique that can do things like that. Well, there are some, but the, but you need but you, to get that kind of precision that you need in the structure, you really do need to do it. Yeah, certain, that's that way. So I mean, okay. Well, so I mean, yeah, it's obviously not ideal, but I mean, just okay. Well, let's uh, let's say that this is a it's a neat idea. Well, we hope to see some progress, and uh, just before we sign off, we should actually give credit to who wrote it. I don't think we did that at the beginning. We did not. <laughs> this was these were guys at oh, it's actually a multi-state or multi-university effort. Yeah. It was the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Stanford University, and North Carolina State University. And the paper was published in Nature Communications. Yes. And the reason we even found it was because 
Why, how did you find it, Greg? You said your old chemistry teacher was consulted for the article? That's what caught my eye, actually, was because he was commenting on it in the article. Okay. Andreas Stein. Um, but the project leaders are actually Paul Braun and John Abelson, both professors at Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And then uh, there's a computational theorist at Professor Shun Kui Fan at Stanford. And it looks like that was the main team. Okay. So we will let Greg go. And Greg, are you going to come back and talk to us about uh, million-year data storage? Yes. 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 Okay. Right. So we'll wait for you. We'll see, right. you, in a bit. We'll see you in a bit. All right. See you. Okay, now I have 15 minutes to go, and then I have to absolutely book it after those 15 minutes. I put my my substrates in their last sonication bath, and once those 15 minutes are up, I have to like hang up immediately and leave. Okay. All right. So, so this next story uh, we found on the MIT Technology Review website, and this is uh, it's a preprint paper published on the archive, and this was published back in. Uh, on October 21st. So, in again, key- you're telling me that's old news. In, but- ke- in keeping with the cutting edge, you know, nature of our program. <laughs> oh, you know what? We should call this segment Old News. Fresh from the wire. We're, well, we're talking about a uh, data storage disk that could potentially store data for a million years without losing quality Losing quality of the data. It can also, sto- it can also store data up to, I think, something like a ridiculously high temperature too at like it was like a yeah it works up to high temperature yeah it was like almost uh, it was over it was almost 3500 degrees C without I mean obviously you were seeing so they were seeing some gaps in the data after uh, testing it but I believe the way they were testing for a million year data was actually aging it at that temperature for an extended period of time to like simulate what it would be like after a million years correct yeah that's right that is interesting so what but the thing with, with long-term data storage is that we have all this data, well, all, all throughout history. I mean, we're, right now we have historians who are going up, digging up Egyptian trash piles and trying to get any data they, ca- they can out of that. Because they just, they don't care what it is. They want to know about everyday lives. And sometimes we're finding some historical documents and things like that. But all this data, it was stored on primitive papers using not very uh, not archival inks so they don't last very long and it's hard hard to get out of so this this comes in when we talk about how we store data on a magnetic disk which i which is you store data as either a positive or a negative a zero or a one yes and the you have your metal conducting layer and then you have a protect a protective non-conductive coating on top and the way that that works, and so, or I guess actually it's a semiconductor on top, isn't yeah, it? Because you, because you want to be able to jump it so you can change the data if you if necessary. But the concept behind this is the, the 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 limiting factor is that Arrhenius's law dictates the likelihood that you'll have your your electron or your hole jump out of. Out yeah, of Arrhenius is more for structural, right? Oh, it, it's a structural thing. Yeah. So it's like, will it jump out of its out of its uh, little box if you will and so that dictates the probability of it so basically over if you extend the lifetime of your data to uh, you know 100 years a thousand years a million years the probability that you will that your your uh, data will jump out of will jump away from its box and like just be lost and be corrupted increases exponentially with every every second that passes Yes. Now, I don't know that this is actually analogic uh, to analogous to a magnetic hard drive. Yeah, but the but the concept behind it's, but the concept behind it is that you're not you're 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 basically keeping your data in place by keeping, using 
using materials. I believe they're using tungsten. They're using uh, not tungsten. Uh, yeah, this is tungsten. All right. So what this this disk storage is? It's actually more like a record than it is like a hard drive. Okay. This is stored. It, it's data stored in bumps, where the bumps are the ones and the zeros. Okay. And these the bumps are tungsten, and then they cover them with silicon nitride, silicon nitride which is which uh, keeps them pretty contained. Contained, yeah. Uh, and comparing this to other other data, floppy drives only last a few years. Uh, cassettes last what, 20 years, maybe? Sure. Cassettes and VHS tapes. Hard drives will only last about 10 years. And none of this is going to last. You'll have to keep transferring stuff. So even if you put something in the Library of Congress, they're constantly having to copy it onto something new. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even a DVD is only supposed to last about 15 years. CD and a DVD before it starts to break down. Is that right, Greg? Uh, From what I've heard, yes. Yeah, so uh, all so of these... that's a different mechanism because DVDs are actually like the holes in the whatever uh, in the reflective layer or whatever. Yeah, yeah. With um, with this tungsten thing, I'm trying to figure it out still, but it sounds it seems to be implying that it's actually another uh, magnetic style storage. It is a magnetic. Style? Yeah, that they were discussing magnetic data in the article. Yeah, I think For they're just comparing it to magnetic. It's a probability of a bit flipping. If it's bumps, then that's not going to be its uh, degradation mechanism or aging mechanism, whatever. If we're if it's if it's more like no, bumps, it yeah. says they're storing data in the form of QR codes. QR codes. That's interesting. Yeah, with lines of a hundred nanometers wide. So they're storing the actual physical structure without any degradation in the lines between the the lines, the space between the lines. That's true. And I can still do that by flipping bits. I'm. This is actually kind of. A criminally vague paper. Well, this is the the yeah. article is is less. Uh, yeah. Again, because we're you know on the cutting edge, and so we're definitely only reading the. Uh, <laughs> the we read we the, read the press release. We didn't read the actual paper. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, so the paper the paper explains it a little bit better. I'm sure that it's full of you know as as a Fox News contributor put it, scientific gobbledygook. <laughs> but really, it's it's not that it's. Like a hard drive or not, it's the fact that it'll actually last a million a, a million years, a based gig- on the probability of something that's a yeah. Gig- yes. a giga year. And so the way that they, year. there's there's no way they could actually test this for a million years. Surprisingly, they don't have a time machine in the lab. Um, so so what we do to test things like this is very similar to, to what we do in what you do in metallurgy for aging a material. Mm-hmm. And that is that you, you just te- increase the temperature a little bit. You you just you so that's yeah that's aging. And yeah. the way you you use the temperature, you, the way you know how much temperature corresponds to how much time, is using this Arrhenius equation. Yes. So what this equation does is it. I'm reading through the paper right now to figure out if it's magnetic. It's not magnetic. It's stored in QR codes. That's still doesn't guarantee. A QR code is a picture that you take with a camera. You can also code it like a QR code using magnetics. Oh, right back by camera and computer. There we go. Yeah, it's original. All right, so the Arrhenius equation... Okay, so Arrhenius equation relates the rate of a chemical reaction to the temperature and... Yeah, the rate of a chemical reaction to the temperature, So or the time. So you can compare that and say, okay, a million years at room temperature is equal to... What did they say in the paper? A million years at room temperature, which is 300 Kelvin, about, is equal to one hour at 445 Kelvin. So they said that this the disk passed this test with ease, or the, the QR code that they're making. That was the million year test? Yes, one million years is, is 445 Kelvin at one hour. So uh, so that's how they tested this, and that's, that's what they're using. This is a... It's not like this is a hand-wavy argument. This is something that we use all the time in metallurgy uh, when you need to age a metal or see how long something will last. For sure. Do you have anything to say about the Arrhenius equation in uh, aerospace? I've never used the Arrhenius equation because I never worked under on the design, and I worked on the you-can't-use-this-because-X 
Again, and again, again, in, in aerospace, your concern isn't like unless you're launching like a long-term satellite. Age isn't your concern, is it? Like, will it survive the rigors of being launched into space with you know like a hundred Gs? Okay, so you vibration and yeah. impulse and all that kind of stuff is will way it, more. Will, important. will will this crap fall apart before it hits orbit? You know, that's pretty much your main concern. Okay. Or if you're working with electronics, will this will, what will make will solar radiations and stuff make this short out? So. All right. Oh, and I guess there's always the stories of the satellites that were left in a warehouse for 20 years and then they don't work just because they've been sitting around. Yeah. So, so I guess, the, yeah, maybe aerospace isn't the best industry to look for uh, longevity. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, on the other hand, we got Voyager. It left our solar system. That's know? true, and that's What's still up? working. Yeah, hey. I- I'm going to take credit for that even though it was launched over 10 years before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So even though it's a QR code, does that does that disappoint you, Greg? I'm reading through there. That was just their like proof of concept thing yeah. to determine the lifetime uh, for high density storage methods. There, it looked like they were using. It looked like in the paper they were justifying it using magnetic principles. I think so. Though they're actually looking at um, reading it using an SEM. They're that's, reading it using an SEM. Oh, that's taking a sample after thermal exposure. I would explain the images you were saying. Um, let's see. So here, a billion, all right, they have in their paper a little table. Storage period of 10 to the 9 years, so that's a billion, Yes. is one hour at 509 Kelvin, or one week at 455 Kelvin, or one year at 420 Kelvin. Those are all equivalent tests for, for that time scale. Um, and then, you know, on the other hand... It's all kind of moot because we'll all have been dead for That's almost true. an entire million years. Yeah, we will be dead, but somebody might. There's, there might. What if, if you had a message that you could send to people a million years from now or a billion year, years? We'll just from use now. it. We'll use it to send volcats. That's what we'll, we'll do. <laughs> the, send the, the link to the, YouTube. The, just like the, just like the ancient Egyptians, we will send forward our weird pathological love of cats doing not cat things. <laughs> That is what we will use this technology for. Wow. Symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Except we'll just do it, you know, two orders of, wait, six orders, four orders of magnitude greater? Yes. Time scale? Four orders of magnitude. Three or four. Something like that. Math defeats us. We're materials engineers. I don't know how long ago, how how old that stuff is. Six, uh, five thousand years. So it's three orders of magnitude more. Yeah. It's about three. Yeah, it looks like laser, laser podcast where you come to listen to semantic arguments about the, the values of numbers. Yeah, so they're they're hoping that this uh, tungsten covered with silicon nitride, they can use it to store a lot of data for a really long time. Uh, perfect for archiving data and sending messages to the future. You could send a time capsule to the moon that would last forever, or you- similar to Voyager's uh, golden record. Has, or if you are an immortal elf and you need to keep your uh, there you go you need to keep your music on your iPod. Somebody playing to me, right? Long, you know, just so yeah. So it's pretty neat, and uh, I think Greg, do you need to get going? Yes. All right. All right. Gentlemen. So we will we'll let Greg go. Greg, thanks for joining us. Thank you for yeah. your time, etc. I'll see you guys later. Talk All right. Bye, Greg. Bye. Well, I believe that wraps up all the topics we have for today. Yep, I want to thank uh, Greg and Chase for joining me. You're welcome. Greg already left, so you know he can't. Yeah. He can't thank you. I'll um, thank you on Greg's behalf. <laughs> so I'll do it pretty sarcastically. Thank you. But yeah, so this has been Laser Podcast. We've been talking about hot off the wire news from almost three weeks ago, <laughs> which I still don't think is old. It's not all right. Fine, fine. You have, it, you have it straight from the academian's mouth. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, this. I don't think that this paper is even published yet. So we're still talking about preprint. So that's it's still new. Yeah, but it was the magnetic storage one at least. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Um, oh, we actually wait. Did we say who that one was from? No, it was from no. that was from uh, the one we practiced saying his name and never really managed to do. It was uh, yeah, Doctor. Jerome DeVry of the University of Twin. 
Twent? Yes. Twent? University of Twent? Twent or Twente or something Twent like that. In it's the, in, it's the in the Netherlands, so however a Dutch person would pronounce that, I embar- we are embarrassed, but we cannot actually yeah. say it. Sorry. Sorry, it's Dutch people. T-W-E-N-T-E. And yes, and the paper is not published yet. We Again, this is in the archive. Um, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, where we will also have a link to all of our other papers that we talked about today. And that all those show notes are found on the website at laserpodcast.com, uh, where you can find links to our Twitter account that you can follow, our Facebook account that you can like. or what if, Do you like Facebook things? I think you follow them now, don't you? Whatever. You follow on Twitter. You like you follow, on Facebook. Okay. All right. So you can like us on Facebook. You can plus us on Google Plus, I suppose. If you're a Google employee. I I use <laughs> Google Plus. Okay. So, or, or Cameron, apparently. <laughs> but I wouldn't trust his opinion. He doesn't know that you follow on Twitter and like on Facebook. But, so it's, it's okay, buddy. Fine. So follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, plus us on Google Plus. Uh, we are in the iTunes podcast store where you can leave a rating and a comment. And we're on Stitcher Radio. So you can also leave con- comments on the website at laserpodcast.com again, or send us an email directly to contact at laserpodcast.com. And I think that's everything we have for today. So thank you. Bye. It wasn't tomorrow. Chase is waving goodbye. I'll wave too. This is what waving sounds like on a podcast. Can we move closer to the microphone? It's not helping. No. All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. This has been the Laser Podcast, or Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. Show notes are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email, contact at laserpodcast.com. Contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast or find us on Facebook or Google+. You can leave a rating on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher. The intro music is Open from the band Crying, and the outro music is Dreams Are Maps from The Wild. You can find more information about the show, links to all the stories we talk about in the show notes on the website. Thanks. Bye. actually recording properly okay yeah that looks good are you adjusting the levels yeah. audio man checking the levels check the levels check the levels check the yeah. levels yeah adjust there's nothing really to adjust so it's a just... laptop you can just press buttons yeah yeah press button yes got it okay. all right We're having some minor technical difficulties not related to the computer or the microphone but in fact that cat is scratching a couch. Because we believe in absolute professionalism here at Laser Podcast, and that is why we record from the very technological studio of Cameron's kitchen table. (laughs) Yeah, well, whatever. In his two-bedroom apartment with crazy neighbors. (laughs) That was the other interruption why there's a little... Somebody came over and told him not to look up a certain video on the internet because it was a woman getting decapitated because apparently the internet is terrible. The bad, internet is terrible. The internet's a terrible place. Yeah. I love it, though. <laughs> if I could become a citizen of the internet, I absolutely would give up my own, my own citizenship.
So you missed that on the balloon, Greg. About taking balloon rides to the, the lower stratos. It was the New York Times one. Yeah. We're, we're a while back, it was October twenty second. Right? Yeah. I mean, Cameron doesn't. Cameron does not know what being current means, does he? Yeah, it was like almost ten years ago. It's like two weeks, three weeks. Time is money, Cameron. Man, you know what? That's why you can't afford a trip on that thing because you don't know that time is money. Maybe. All right, plugging in our headphones so we can uh, record. Oh, that's loud. Maximum volume. Is this is this gonna work? I don't know. Greg, you've got a lot of noise. Um, yeah, you're in the lab, right? Can't yeah. you just cut, couldn't you just cut down, uh, like, just, like, ignore all sound below a certain decibel, because it's just, like, background noise. Yeah, like, if you could just cut all sound, like, below a certain level, that'll cut out all the ambient noise, because stuff's really quiet. It's just, like a like, a persistent ambient hiss. I don't know. Though. This is a lot. This is a lot more noise than I've ever removed. And usually, if you remove noise, it gets it starts to get tinny. Okay, if we all just be quiet, let's look at the levels. Mm, it won't pick up on this. I'll have to. All right, Greg, I'm gonna hang up and call you right back. All right, give me two minutes. Greg, drinking paps. Blue ribbons in the middle of the day. Yeah, drinking papsies. No, I guess drive, but that's another matter. That's an that's an integral part of science is being. Well, not while you're doing science, but thinking about it. Whoa! What? The f- that? What? <laughs> Did you just like be just, like s- <laughs> scrape an ice pick over a chalkboard? Is that what that was? Did I finally find the microphone. I always wonder where it was. What was that? Ah! Yeah. Don't why? Do that. Don't do that. I'll be right up there. Cool. Yes, that's the microphone. Right here? No. Stop, just stop, stop poking at no, things. All right. let's, let's record the podcast, Greg. We're all in a hurry. You have to leave in 30 minutes. Yes. But, I'm saying, but, but so if you have the... Te- but if, so if, obviously, the 